Oh, gracious Lord God, give us what is ours in Jesus Christ. A man, our Lord, who was against the world and only in so being could be for the world. May we be like him. May we have his graces in some measure, Lord, and in increase. We pray that you would allow us to hear this, Lord, today with the ear of faith. If our hearts are hardened to it already, embattle them. Break down the strongholds. Raise the rampart and sack us, Lord. Subdue us to the glory of the one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you have vindicated. You have raised up and seated at your right hand. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would see him and we would be held captive by his glory. Lord Jesus, give to us all of you. Give to us, Lord, all the benefits that belong to the children of God, even this boldness. In Jesus' name we pray now. Amen. Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you, all of you, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go. 
finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and with great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds to what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. On January 28th, 1555, Nine years before his death, John Calvin wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to the Reformed Church of Paris. The purpose of this letter was the same as several other letters that Calvin had written to the churches of France. Calvin wrote this letter to fortify the courage of a church under constant persecution. By 1555, the Church of Paris already had several martyrs. It was meeting in secret. First, they met in private homes. Then they met in caves. As they grew larger, they met in the woods at night. Would you attend? Oh, I'd be there in a heartbeat. They were a persecuted church. In the first sentence of his letter, Calvin got right to it and addressed the hard realities of this church. I am of no doubt that Satan is daily preparing for you new assaults and along with his agents devising every means to make you lose heart. For my part, I wish to lay myself out to strengthen your courage. Calvin wanted to do all he could do 
to keep them living in the boldness of Christ. He did not scold them for meeting secretly. And if you read Calvin's letters, you'll find out how he delicately deals with this need of secret meetings, but also the need to evangelize. It's really quite wonderful to read them all. Calvin didn't scold them, but he wanted them to stay active in evangelism. He urged them to keep meeting together. He urged them not to drift apart. He urged them not to become private individuals again because they would soon then return to the heirs of the Roman church, which at the time was ruling France with an iron fist and bloody hands. Calvin, of course, was a Frenchman himself, now exiled in Geneva. His heart bled for his countrymen. It really did. But he wanted to give them more than his sympathy. He wanted to invigorate their boldness for the glory and enjoyment of God. So in this letter, he pressed two foundational truths of boldness upon them. First, he said, we should do God this honor to make more account of his protection than all the devices of Satan and his followers. It's a great honor to God to make more of his protection than we make of the devil's rage. Let our confidence in God's care determine our actions, is Calvin's point, not our fear of the devil. Calvin's second truth for boldness was this, and I quote, We shall never be fit for the service of God if we look not beyond this fleeting life. Let us continually raise our thoughts to that everlasting inheritance so as to despise this perishable life and all its vanities. Beloved, do you despise this perishable life? Why don't you? Why would you honor something perishable? Why would you think highly of it? Why would you want to work harder to keep more of it? Why would you be upset when you lose some of it? It's perishable. The best it can do is perish. No, it can do one thing better. It can lead you to what is imperishable, the Lord God. What Calvin meant by that second foundational truth of boldness is that the glory of the age to come and your place in it, which the risen Christ has given to you, that heavenly glory must be your fixation in this life, then the world will appear to you for what it is, a vain wasteland of death and misery. The world doesn't want your faith. It wants to destroy your faith. Why would you be so interested in something that wants to destroy your faith? Why would you be so cozy with it? So Calvin rightly says, set your thoughts on that everlasting inheritance. Now, Calvin very well may have taken these two truths of Christian boldness from our reading, from Acts chapter 4. We see, in fact, both of these truths in our reading today. We see Peter and the newly reformed church of Jerusalem. Notice what I did there? I just planted a reformed church in Jerusalem. That's what Peter did. His boldness, in fact, began in the previous chapter, didn't it? Peter 
preaching a sermon in Acts chapter 3 in the temple sets himself up as a teacher of the church of God against the authorities who were duly and properly installed. No offense, elders. But against the corrupt authorities who were duly and properly installed in the ancient church of Moses. Peter is Luther before Luther. He sets himself forth as the teacher of God, recognizing that Jesus Christ has given him this office. And it causes him to be arrested. What we see is a newly reformed church in Jerusalem emboldened to live public lives for Christ, both by their confidence in the protection of God and by their participation in the heavenly glory of the risen Christ. Those two truths right there are the root of all Christian boldness. If you struggle with courage, go to the roots. They're right here. Our confidence in the protection of God and our participation in the heavenly glory of the risen Christ. And those two truths are tightly wound together in Acts 4 like a mighty rope. And we see this especially in verses 23 through 31. In that section of chapter 4, the Christian church has already been arrested. They have already been threatened. They have already been told not to speak of Jesus and not to teach of Jesus. That's all clear in verse 18. But in verse 23, what do they do? Against all these threats, they gather together anyway and lift their voices in joy to the living God. And in their praise and prayer, they push all the rage of the Gentiles and all the vanities of the peoples over to one side. You see that in verse 24 through 27, especially verse 25. And there's a quotation here from Psalm 2, right? The nation's raging. So that this Reformed church in Jerusalem pushes all the rage of the nations and all the vanities of the peoples. That's how you should read the world. They push it all to one side, and on the other side, they confess the sovereign hand of the Almighty God and his predestined plan, plan for Christ to be crucified in Jerusalem and raised from the dirt of Jerusalem. They confess the sufferings and the glory of the Son. On which side, do you suppose, will they take shelter? They will not take shelter behind the earthly powers of the raging nations. They take their shelter behind the heavenly power, the hand of God. So look what they say in verse 29. And now, Lord... Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The church is not going to let the disapproval of important people determine how they live their lives for Christ. They're going to let the Lord's protection and his provision of grace keep them rooted in boldness meaning they are not going to hide the truth about Christ. That's the entry-level 
continued square one all the way through all other squares is that that's the entry level of boldness to not hide the truth about Christ. They are not going to speak in sophisticated, shadowy ways to keep the salvation of Christ cloudy and murky and ambiguous so that the prominent Jews in Jerusalem don't get upset. They are not going to play that game. No, they will not obey earthly authorities, nor will they obey corrupt church authority. They will not stay silent of Christ, meaning they will not disappear. They will not recede back into the shadows. They will not seek the approval of men nor the security of men. They will take shelter behind the hand of God and press on in bold proclamation of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. But look at verse 30. Here's the second root of their boldness, entwined with the first. Remember the first? The first root is their confidence in God's protection. The second root is their participation in the resurrection of Christ. Now, you probably have noticed something already. You cannot benefit from these roots of Christian boldness without faith. There are not 17 practical steps to Christian boldness. There are two foundational roots of Christian boldness apprehended only by faith. We we will be dull to these if we don't have faith. If we don't see the glory of the risen Christ, we are going to be bored with these and want to be told, well, how can I speak more snappily, more critically, more forcefully? That's not boldness. Boldness is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So let's go to the second root. The second root is participation in the resurrection of the Lord. Look at verse 30. They say to the Lord, Grant us boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Right there in verse 30, the church is confessing their participation in Christ's resurrection. The heavenly hand of protection is also the heavenly hand of healing. And why healing? Why is the man who could not walk for over 40 years suddenly healed? Verse 22. Because he is a sign of the risen Christ. Miracles of healing were a sign that God's holy servant Jesus has healed the whole body of our humanity through his own death to sin and resurrection to glory. He told the sisters, Mary and Martha, on the day that he summoned the putrefied flesh of Lazarus from the tomb, Lazarus, come out. He told the sisters in that very hour, I am the resurrection and the life. And Lazarus became a sign, too, of the more substantial, permanent healing that Christ has wrought by raising our humanity to this indestructible glory, reconciled to God through the cross and the grave and the sky. In these early days of the church, Jesus was giving temporary tokens 
of his, of his resurrection by sometimes healing the sick. But as the church matured in faith under the care of the Holy Spirit, the tokens were mostly t- taken away so the church would look to and rest upon the greater healing of Christ's own body being raised. We are not deficient because we don't have the same amount of healings as they did when Christ walked the earth or when the apostles did. We are not deficient. We have seen the greater wonder. We have seen it by the Spirit that Christ has physically raised from the dead. So what we have in verse 30 then is the church praying that their faith will continue to be strengthened by their participation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a prayer that they will not lose sight of his heavenly glory. That's what verse 30 is. And and this, notice, do notice how verse 29 is connected to verse 30. This prayer is the root of their boldness, the prayer of verse 30. How can those whose master has already conquered death continue to fear men? How can those whose master has already conquered death continue to cling to the world? They cannot. They are putting that behind them. They are gaining in strength to strength. They will not continue to fear men. They will not continue to cling to the world. And that prayer in verse 29 and 30, beloved, is evidence that a church united to the risen Christ, cannot keep clinging to the earth, cannot be ruled by the fear of men. Right here by the Spirit of God, they are liberated from such fears and such clinging. And they are praying for more boldness. This is what the born-again child of God wants. More than more money. More than more leisure. More than more adulation more than greater reputation. They want more boldness for the Savior, for themselves and for the body of Christ that they worship with. So here then, here then are the roots of Christian boldness. One more time before we do the fruits. First, the root of confidence in God's protection. Lord, look upon their threats. Shelter us behind your hand. The care of God, this is the first root, is more compelling to the church of Christ than the threats of Satan's servants. We are not as compelled by those threats as by God's care. As someone once said, when, when he looked on Goliath, David didn't start listing all the ways Goliath was big, strong, and terrifying. He instead started declaring the love and the power and the might of God. That's what's happening right here in Acts 4. Knowing the living and true God is your God and that you are reconciled to him and he orders all things for you, this makes a man bold in Christ. The second root, as we've said, is participation in the heavenly glory of the risen Christ. The Apostle Paul, when speaking about the resurrection of Christ, said this, If what has been brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. There he's referring to the ministry of Moses, which was delivered from Mount Sinai with a glory. 
it radiated Moses' face. But what Christ has brought us to, Mount Zion in heaven, has a permanent glory. And then Paul says immediately, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And he uses the same word. 2 Corinthians 3, 11 and 12. Now let's speak about the fruits of Christian boldness. Because these two are hanging in our text. Christian boldness, first, is mainly about speaking plainly and openly about salvation in Christ. Christian boldness, Christian boldness is mainly about speaking plainly and openly about salvation in Christ. That's not all it is. We'll come to that. But that's what it mainly is. Listen to me carefully. You have not moved on to Christian boldness if all you are doing is running around the villages of this country wanting people to put up monuments to the Ten Commandments. Do you know why? There is no salvation in the Ten Commandments. There is no salvation in love the Lord thy God and love your neighbor as yourself. That is not the gospel. That is the glorious, beautiful law. It is a reflection of Christ himself, but it is not the the gospel of your salvation. There's no boldness in it. Because a Jew who rejects Christ, who is pleased to tell his friends to keep rejecting Christ, he will honor you if you want to set up a monument to the Ten Commandments. Christian boldness is mainly about speaking plainly and openly about salvation in Christ. This is at the heart of Peter's conflict with the elders of Israel in Jerusalem. Look at what he says in Acts 4, 8 through 12. He lays it out as plain as day. Peter says, you crucified Jesus. No ambiguity there. God raised Jesus from the dead. No ambiguity. The risen Jesus has healed this crippled man by his heavenly power. No ambiguity. You rejected Jesus, he says. No ambiguity. You are the master builders spoken of in Psalm 118, verse 22. But in sinful blindness, you rejected God's precious stone, his servant son, the Messiah. But God did not reject him. No matter what you said about him, no matter what you did to him, God did not agree and join you. God exalted him. God set him to be the headstone of the corner of everything God is building in his kingdom of salvation. He's building it on the one you killed. No ambiguity in Peter. Plain, open, no shadowy phrases. No, I wonder what he means. Boy, it sounds like poetry. He's straight talk. If you want, give him the straight talk express bus. That's what Peter's doing. Now think about this. Who is speaking in verses 8 through 12? Peter. Who is he speaking before? The top men of the church in Jerusalem. The ancient church of Moses. They sit in Moses' seat, Matthew 23. Peter is speaking to the top men. The same Peter who on the night of our Lord's arrest 
was defeated by a servant girl. Do you remember that? She said, you're one of his followers. Peter jumped. He said, no, I'm not. No boldness before a servant girl. But now Peter is speaking boldly. Why? Because there's another root. There's another root here, isn't there? Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. Christ from heaven dwells in his servant on earth. That's why Peter can speak as plainly and boldly as Christ. In fact, the same word for boldness in Acts chapter 4, where you read it and you heard it three times, it's the same Greek word used to describe our Lord's speech in Mark chapter 8, when it says he was telling his disciples plainly that he was going to Jerusalem, where he would be arrested and killed. He said it without ambiguity to them, knowing it would scandalize them. And who did it scandalize that day? Peter. Peter now sounds just like the Lord Jesus because the Lord Jesus dwells in Peter. It is not Peter who lives. It is Christ who lives in him. And Peter now lives by his faith in the Son of God. Peter can only speak this way, beloved, because of the Holy Spirit. This is why some people don't want to go to worship God. It's a bridge of boldness too far for them. Even gathering in a public assembly of Christians is a bridge of boldness too far because they don't have the Spirit of God yet. You you cannot scold them to lay hold of something that can only be given as a gift. Pray for them. Understand them. Understand the great misery they're in. For you too were once in that misery without the Spirit of God. Calvin, in his letter to that same church of Paris, said, There is no one who, after self-examination, does not feel more and more convinced of his weakness. Well might the most valiant tremble if they are not thoroughly fortified. The fortification of boldness is the Spirit of God, and it issues in a willingness and a readiness and an eagerness to speak plainly of the glory of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's why many of you have come today. Because working in you is that fortification from heaven. And you've added your voices to this bold pronouncement we've made today in our songs and our prayers that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. So let me understand something with you. Peter is speaking But he's not using extraordinary words. He's saying extraordinary things. But he's not using words they can't understand. That means boldness is not Peter speaking loudly. Boldness is not Peter speaking with venom on his lips. Boldness is not Peter hissing at these rulers. Boldness does not mean he's trying to find words that are the most aggressive and disrespectful words that he can, that's not boldness. That's a charade. That's boldness for its own sake. A man who fears to be seen as weak does that. Boldness is coming and telling somebody that what they really need is Jesus. That's why they don't love their wife. 
That's why they are cruel to their children. That's why they keep robbing from their boss time or money, because they need Jesus. That's bold, because that's not what they want to hear. To speak boldly is to tell the truth about salvation straight. And Peter does so, especially in verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I need to be a part of a church that says that. Praise God, I am part of a church that says that. That's Christian boldness. No ambiguity, no wringing of our hands. Well, maybe there's another way that some people will get in. No, if God is sovereign over the salvation of men, he can make everyone he wants to believe in his son. We don't need to enter into the shadows and the ambiguities. God will bring everyone he wants to save to faith in his son so that he can say, there is no other name given among men by which they must be saved. That's Christian boldness. Now, there's another fruit before us. Christian boldness is... Yes, speaking plainly and openly about salvation in Christ. But notice that Christian boldness is also corporate. Corporate. A body, a congregation, a church. Look at verse 23. When they were released, they all went their separate ways, rented a month's worth of Netflix movies, And never saw each other again. No. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. And they worshipped and prayed. Beloved, this is why we gather to God. Because together we know that we have entered the participation of the heavenly glory of Jesus Christ. This is why corporate worship is on a Sunday. It's the day that Christ came out of the tomb. Beloved, the fruit of Christian boldness rooted in the resurrection of Christ is a corporate voice of praise. It is a public defiance against all the speeches of the world, that there is another way to be eternally safe with God. We declare the one true way for the good of men's souls. I want to encourage you. As Calvin said, you may be very convinced of your weakness in this matter. The Spirit is your fortification, but understand, in corporate worship, even the newest and the weakest Christian gets to join their voice to the boldness of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Even the littlest Christian among us today is being discipled in Christian boldness as they raise their little voice in confessing their faith, as they raise their little voice in singing praise to God through Jesus, his son. What great wisdom of God to demonstrate in this text today that Christian boldness is not an independent, individualistic project. 
It is the corporate congregational blessing that even our little ones are taken. In his letter that I told you about to the Reformed Church of Paris, meeting in the woods, Calvin made something of this very point, knowing that Christian boldness requires congregational gathering. He wrote in the letter to a church under great threats, quote, Take refuge in him who is our stronghold, and whatever fall out, beware of dispersion, which can only bring ruin upon you. If there be neither flock nor assembly, you can be sure you are on the point of falling prey to the wolf. When a Christian is no longer gathering physically with other Christians who are gathering physically, representing in their gathering the visible body of Jesus Christ on heaven and earth, when a Christian is no longer doing that, they are laying down on the teeth of the wolf. And in the context of Calvin's letter, the wolf was the Roman church ready to devour the precious gospel faith of new Christians. So he urges, even though it is under clandestine circumstances, meeting in the woods, he urges there to be no dispersion. And beloved, that means part of our boldness will continue and extend to the places we avoid because they, by joining ourselves to them in the body, those places are the antithesis to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is why I mentioned earlier Christians having the courage to not attend a gay wedding. I could go down a lengthy list here today, but those assemblies of men that are not assembling at Costco, but assembling under religious pretense and declaring that somehow a bride and a groom are something other than the prefigurement of Christ's union with his church. Those assemblies are false assemblies. And we, keeping our bodies away from them, we are boldly proclaiming that Jesus Christ alone is creator of man and woman and savior of a bride through the blood of a groom. Corporate worship is such a discipling habitat for Christian boldness. We see where we belong, and we learn by belonging there that where we don't belong. And Costco's okay. It was there yesterday. And lastly, I should say today, Christian boldness also bears the fruit of worship. That is, of course, right on the heels of our most recent point about Christian boldness being corporate. But notice their worship. They are praising and praying to God. They find their great fellowship with God through the fruits of their boldness. They want to be in his presence, which means the un- those that are most unashamed of Christ will be most unashamed to worship him. Corporately on Sunday, but even somewhere in the highways and byways of life, those who are most unashamed of Christ 
saturated in Christian boldness, will be the quickest to worship him and say, oh, yes, the Lord gave that to me. Oh, yes, that's going well for me because of the Lord. Yes, I'm afflicted, but it's the Lord's affliction. He has a purpose in it. I praise him. They're worshiping him everywhere. Why? Because they're unashamed of their God. They're unashamed of a Savior who suffered under the predestined plan of their God. They are not ashamed of suffering any longer. Everything about their life now becomes worship in the intensity of a Sunday to the disbursement of every day. We are always speaking of the Lord Jesus for an explanation of our joy and our sadness. You see, Christian boldness is not just a sidelight of the Christian life. It's at the heart of it. But let me say, before we misunderstand, boldness is not an end in itself. Christians are not bold because they don't simply wish to be seen as weak. I know a lot of non-Christian men who fear like poison being seen as weak. Christian boldness is not afraid of weakness, but it it demands to be weakened for the glory of the suffering Savior. It 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 will be gladly humiliated when somebody discovers that I'm a sinner and that I'm worse than they thought I was. Christian boldness is not ashamed of that weakness because it allows them to say something about the Savior. Beloved, the roots and the fruits of Christian boldness are laid before you in Acts chapter 4. All you need is in the word of God and his spirit to rise up in the courage to be a man for Christ, to be a woman for Christ. He has given you this again today. Praise him. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of Acts 4. Sanctify us by it so that we would glorify you through it. Lord, we pray for the grace of your spirit to believe it. If any here today do not believe your word as spoken, Father, look upon them with mercy and not anger. Turn your anger away from them, Lord, we pray, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And look upon their unbelief and give them your spirit so that they would believe that these things are true and the most important things in the world and in the age to come. Father, help our children. Help them, Father, for they will need great Christian boldness for the years ahead. Father, we pray that you would grant it to them. Root them in the protection and care of God as more compelling than the threats of the devil. And Father, set deep in their heart their inheritance and participation in the heavenly glory of your risen Son. That this world is passing away. It is perishable in every part. And that the new heavens and the new earth belong to them in Jesus Christ. And Father, may this make us all endure against every trial 
even the worst, until the very end, with even joy. In Jesus' name, amen.